0: I want you to listen carefully to these words. These words written by an American prophetess, I believe. The Bible and the Bible alone is the source of doctrine. Never should the testimonies be carried to the front. Let all prove every point of doctrine from the Scriptures. The Spirit was not given nor can it ever be bestowed to supersede the Bible. For the scriptures explicitly state that the word of God is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible alone as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. This book was re- recently sent to me by the publisher The Celtic Doctrine of Seventh-day Adventists by Dale Ratzlaff. I have no question that he is an earnest Christian gentleman but today I beg to differ with him. Let me give you a summary of the book And of course, because it's a summary, it's going to be very, very imperfect. He says in the book, in so many words, that the 1844 movement was false. That Ellen White is basically a fraud. The doctrine of the pre-advent judgment, as called by some the investigative judgment, is unbiblical and opposed to the true gospel. The Daniel 8 is fulfilled in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived a couple of hundred years before Christ. And then he says that in our church, many do not understand the true gospel. And with this, I would agree. But I would agree that this statement is probably relevant to every church. Many do not understand the true gospel anywhere you go. And he talks about the moral influence theory, which is particularly found in areas of Southern California, and says, er, This is a dreadful doctrine. He's perfectly correct. It is a dreadful, unchristlike, dreadful doctrine. It is a heresy. Then he talks about the doctrine of perfectionism that has invaded our church. And uh, I would agree with much what he says here. Perfectionism, however, is not limited to our church. You can find it, my friend, in the charismatic churches and in the Methodist church and in the Baptist church. Almost every church has been afflicted by the heresy of perfectionism. Then in this book, he says that we have a dangerous cultic, the other one please, a dangerous cultic cultic trend in that we are making our own bibles and he makes this point very very plainly he says it is a, a dangerous cultic trend in books such as the clear word that is sold and owned by so many of our people and I would like to say this before we go any further today we're not going to be using the clear word we're going to be using God's word the word of God The clear word, I believe, has helped many people and will help many people. It will be a blessing to many people as long as they realize that it is not a translation. It is not a translation. It is not even a paraphrase like the Living Bible. It is simply an interpretation. And if they understand it's one good man's interpretation of the Bible, that is fine. But let no person think that the clear word is God's word now I want to talk about the true gospel versus the counterfeits you can misunderstand many many things and be saved because most of us do not have a clear understanding on most things you can misunderstand many things and be saved but I say to you today don't misunderstand the gospel I want you please to open your Bibles and come to the most important book in the Bible as far as the gospel is concerned. And that is the book of Romans, called by Tyndale, Good, Glad, and Merry Tidings, that makes a man's heart to sing for joy and his feet to dance. Now would you please turn to Romans chapter 3, which contains a marvelous statement on the gospel. And I want to start my discourse today by a reference to the gospel. Please turn to Romans chapter 3, and verse 19 and onwards. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of sin. No person, my friend, can ever be saved by obedience to the law. Because none of us, my friend, have ever kept the law of God as God intended. The Bible says you can't be saved by keeping the law. Verse 21 and onwards. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Let me say it ever so plainly, my friend. We are not saved by our obedience. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by works, but we are saved by his works. And the gospel, my friend, is not good advice the gospel is good news and the Bible says that I am justified freely because of faith in his blood the word justify means to declare righteous it doesn't mean to make righteous the making of righteousness is fine and wonderful and important that is called sanctification But I am saved when I am justified. And when I am justified and I come to Christ, God gives me in that very moment everlasting life. And I can know today that my sins are forgiven and that I'm on my way to the glory land. I want to say this publicly, that we believe in the sacrificial atoning death Of Jesus for our sins. It is our hope. Let me say a few words about the moral influence theory prevalent in some areas of Southern California. It is a dreadful unchristian doctrine. It denies the blood atonement. It is believed by many many. It has been condemned by church councils all down through history. It is condemned by our own church and we condemn it today. It is a doctrine, my friend, not of God. The moral influence theory is a doctrine that came, I believe, from the Antichrist. And then what about perfectionism that Dale accuses us of? What he has said there about perfectionism could describe the Methodist church, most of the Pentecostals, and certainly the Roman Catholic church. What is perfectionism? Perfectionism is the... Idea that I must become perfect before I can go to heaven, that I must become sinless, and uh, there's a long process of getting right with God. Perfectionism, you see, confuses justification and sanctification. And perfectionism, my friend, is a heresy that has destroyed multitudes of souls and driven them into black discouragement. I believe, my friend, in the perfectionism that is found in Christ. And God considers that I am perfect when I am in Christ. And then, my friend, I am ready to go to heaven. And when I am declared righteous by Jesus, I have a perfect security and I have an absolute assurance that I am saved and I'm going home to glory. Let me now pass to the doctrine of the pre-advent judgment, as it is often called the investigative judgment. May I say this to you and to my critics and to my friends? It is not very hard to throw stones down the mouth of a well. Anybody can throw stones. It is much harder to get down in the well and bring those stones out again. In his book he has thrown many stones down the well. By the grace of God we're going to get down the well and take them out. So that's the purpose of the meeting today. Daniel 8 verse 1 and onwards. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision I saw myself in the the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision I was beside the Yulai Canal. I looked up and there before me me was a ram with two horns standing before the canal. And in the scriptures, I don't need to prove it to you, everybody knows it, everybody agrees with this. The ram represents Medo-Persia. Then we come down to verse 5. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn, that was Alexander, between his eyes came from the west and the goat in this passage is Greece. Nobody disputes this, Dale would agree with this. Now we come to verse 9 and onwards and we come to the contentious portion. Out of one of them, that is from Greece, out of one of the divisions of Greece, came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land, that is the land of Israel. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. What great words these are, my friend. Are they not dramatic? A great portrayal of a great conflict. Verse 13 and and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and of the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, It will take two thousand evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated or restored to its rightful place, or vindicated, or justified. These verses I've read just now are of special significance and contention. There was a person, a nefarious person, whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived back in the second century before Christ. You can read about him in the Apocrypha at the back of most Bibles, many Bibles. You can read about him in the book of Maccabees. He desecrated the Jewish temple uh, that through the valiant efforts of the Maccabees was eventually restored and cleansed. This is the viewpoint of most Jewish commentators. They say that this horn power here who ravages the sanctuary is Antiochus Epiphanes. And a host of Christian commentators take the same viewpoint. I would say probably the majority. But some commentators, including Jewish commentators, saw more than Antiochus. They saw here Antiochus as the type of the great Antichrist. Listen carefully. I'm going to give you now, I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff, but you'll just have to listen in there. I'm going to give you biblical reasons why this horn power is the great Antichrist whose work of rebellion reaches its climax in the last days and why these verses cannot be fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. Notice the verses, please. Verse 10, it grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Listen, listen very carefully. I can tell you my viewpoint on this but it's only worth the value of my viewpoint. We need to go to scripture and see how Scripture understands these verses. And when I read how Scripture understands these verses, I come to the conclusion they cannot be fulfilled with this petty tyrant, Antiochus Epiphanes. Let me give you the proofs. Proof number one. Come over here to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 And verses 1 and onwards. Revelation 12, verse 1 and onwards. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Verse 2, she was pregnant. And then verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. My friend, the words are almost the same. And who is this power in Revelation 12? This is the Antichrist. This is Satan himself. This is not Antiochus Epiphanes. The person who reaches into heaven and who casts the stars down to the ground. Uh, Would you please read verses 7 to 9? There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. And the Bible tells us ever so plainly that before the creation of this world there was a great war in heaven and that this war was led by Lucifer, Satan, Beelzebub and he was cast down upon this earth and he works through powers that are opposed to the kingdom of God and he works through the earthly antichrist. And so... Revelation 12 says, hey, this is not Antiochus. It's more than this. Now here's proof number two. Listen to this. Jesus, our Lord, our infallible Lord in the New Testament quotes from Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 where it talks about this nefarious abomination of desolation. And Jesus says, this is the Antichrist Of the Christian era. Now take your Bible and turn quickly to Mark chapter 13 and verse 14 to our Lord's commentary on the book of Daniel and the abomination of desolation. Mark chapter 13 and verse 14 Jesus said. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus now is quoting from Daniel chapter 8. And Jesus is not saying, hey, this was Antiochus Epiphanes and it's all over. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, stand in the holy place. Jesus said, understand. And you find those words in Matthew 24 come now to Matthew 24 Matthew 24 and be fast about it please Matthew 24 and verse 14 and 15 Matthew 24 14 and 15 and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come the end will come So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel let the reader understand. And so Jesus Christ our infallible Lord gives the correct understanding of the abomination of desolation and he says when you see him stand in the holy place. Now the prophecy of Matthew 24 is a double prophecy. It was fulfilled in 70 AD but it reaches, my friend, its consummation. It is filled full at the end of the world. So Matthew 24 concerns AD 70, and it concerns the last great conflict in the world when the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, comes against the church. And Jesus here is quoting from Daniel chapter 8. Now you don't need to look up these texts because I've got so much to tell you. Other New Testament writers also give a commentary on Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 11 and Daniel 12. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about the man of sin standing in the holy place. The same language as the abomination of desolation. And John in Revelation 11 talks about the sanctuary being trodden underfoot for the 1260 days. And so Jesus and Paul and John give us God's interpretation of Daniel chapter 8. And they refer to the great Antichrist whose greatest work of evil is done in the last days therefore listen Daniel 8 cannot be confined to the second century BC and Antiochus Epiphanes and I have proved this point from scripture now let me give you a brief exegesis of Daniel 8 and brief it must be come down to Daniel chapter 8 and uh, verse 9 and onwards Out of one of them came another horn or power which started small but grew in power to the south and the east and towards the beautiful land. It says out of one of them, out of one of the divisions of Greece. It is an historical fact that Rome grew out of Greece. There was originally a Greek settlement along the banks of the Tiber and out of one of those divisions came the Roman Empire. And this is talking here not just about Antiochus Epiphanes no 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 it's talking about Rome verse 10 it grew until it reached the host of the heavens Antiochus never did that and it threw some of the starry hosts to the earth and trampled on them now my friend as you study this chapter and as you study history you discover that Rome pagan becomes Rome papal and as far as God is concerned there's only one power And the Bible says here he takes some of the stars and he throws them to the earth. What is this a picture of? It is a picture, my friend, of what Satan started among the angels in heaven. He does now to the saints on this earth. He ravages the church. And remember, any power that ravages the church is an antichrist. And so what Satan started in heaven, he continues upon the earth. He ravages the church and persecution takes place. Now verse 11, it set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. Not some obscure Jewish priest, no but Jesus, he's the prince of the host. So this power sets himself up to be as great as the prince of the host. This power, my friend, is the Antichrist because he puts himself in the place of God. And he says words like this, We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. This power says, Come confess your sins to me. I will forgive your sins. I have the power of the keys and I can forgive your sins. And I stand between you and Almighty God. So he makes war against the prince of the host. This is the great pretender. Verse 11, it set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Oh that I had hours to talk about this. The word daily here is the Hebrew word "tamed, and it refers to the sacrifices and the ceremonies Of the sanctuary. And when it says the daily was taken away. It is an attack upon the plan of redemption that was taught in the sanctuary. You see my friend. The ministry of the ancient uh, sanctuary typified the plan of redemption. Bless your heart. In the holy place. The most holy place. There was an ark with a broken law. And out in the courtyard there was a bleeding beast. The message of the sanctuary is without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins. How I abhor the bloodless doctrine of the moral influence theory. But this my friend is the story of a bleeding lamb. And when it says he takes away the daily it means he takes away the true gospel. And he sets up a counterfeit gospel. Of righteousness by works. You see in the heart of the earth. There was the nation of Israel. The center of the earth. In the center of Jerusalem. In the center of Israel. There was Jerusalem. In the center of Jerusalem. There was the sanctuary. In the center of the sanctuary. There was the most holy place. In the center of the most holy place. There was the ark. And in the center of the ark. There was the law of God. The very center of everything. And because that law had been broken, there was a bleeding animal in the courtyard. And when it says he took away the, the, the daily and the sanctuary, it means he takes away the gospel and he takes away God's priest. And this, of course, is the story of Christianity. The Bible talks about the great falling away, the apostasy, and the setting up of a counterfeit system based on righteousness by works which was basically perfectionism. But even that system my friend wouldn't accept the moral influence theory because it was so ungodly. Even Antichrist wouldn't have the moral influence theory, it was so wretched. This system sets up a very clever, beautiful counterfeit based on righteousness by works with a counterfeit priest and a counterfeit calvary because every time the priest said this is my body the bread becomes the actual body of Christ and the wine becomes the blood of the lamb. It is called in scriptures the abomination of desolation. Don't tell me this is Antiochus Epiphanes come on don't make me laugh. And then it says, verse 12, Because of rebellion the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Prosperity is not a sign of godliness. So here you have a picture of truth on the scaffold, error on the throne. The law of God changed, the gospel perverted and the saints persecuted thus the sanctuary is cast down and what does the context people say dale says we ignore the context no we don't he does the context is a cry for judgment the context is a cry that the god of his people will rise and vindicate them and unmask the antichrist that's the context verse 12 because of rebellion The host of the saints and the daily were given over to it, it prospered in everything it did, truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, that holy one is an angel. And another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily, the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, it'll take two thousand evenings and mornings or days then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated or vindicated. Listen to this my friends. Verse 14 is no insignificant text. It is the high point of symbolism in the book of Daniel. Everything in Daniel, everything in Daniel works to Daniel 8 14. It's the high point of symbolism. This verse summarizes the whole book the vindication of the sanctuary and the vindication of the worshippers and the vindication of God. Let me give you a little theology. The word then shall the sanctuary be cleansed is known to us because of the King James Version. It is not a bad translation but it is somewhat inadequate. The word cleanse in the Hebrew is nitzdak which is the niphile form of Zadak. Uh, this word Nitzdak is only used once here in this present form in the whole of the Bible. But Zadak is used over and over again. And the word enshrines the theme of Daniel. The word Daniel means God is my judge. And the word Nitzdak, which comes from Zadak means vindication. It is a forensic term. We all know what this is. It is a term my friend that points to judgment and deliverance. The word my friend. Then the sanctuary is going to be vindicated means God is going to step in in judgment. In the scriptures literal literal, historical periods more than a year are never set forth in days. Write that down in your head. In Scripture, literal, historical periods, more than a year, are never set forth in days. Therefore, the 2,300 days should not be taken literally. The 2,300 days reach to the time of the end, the last days, and I will prove it to you i would be sad if i believed that antiochus was the only power here because it's poor scholarship i'm going to give you powerful proofs by the 2300 days reach to the time of the end listen carefully i've got to be brief daniel 2 babylon medo persia greece rome you know then you come down to the stone and the kingdom of god daniel 2 climaxes in the days Of the kingdom of God. Daniel 7. Babylon. Medo-Persia. Greece. Rome. The judgment. The kingdom of God. Daniel 7. Climaxes in the kingdom of God. Daniel 11. Climaxes in the kingdom of God. Daniel 12. Climaxes in the kingdom of God. But my friends say. But Daniel 8. Climaxes in the days of Antiochus. Piffle. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12 are parallel prophecies and they climax in the days of the kingdom of God. If that is so, then the 2,300 days cannot be confined to the days of the Old Testament. They climax in the setting up of the kingdom. Listen carefully. That is a strong argument. It cannot be answered. Everything after Daniel 8.14 is explanation. Before that it's basically symbolism. And then you have the high point of symbolism in Daniel 8.14, the vindication of the sanctuary. Everything that comes after it, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12, are explanations of Daniel 8. And those chapters climax in the resurrection and the setting up of the kingdom. Now let me give you some illustrations of this. Come quickly. Daniel 8 verse 14. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be vindicated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So he came near the place where I was standing. I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end, the time of the end, the time of the end. And when Jesus Christ comments on this and uses the end, he's referring to the end of the world. And then verse 20 he says the two-horned ram which you saw is Medo-Persia. Verse 21 the shaggy is the king of Greece. Verse 23 in the latter part of their reign when rebels have become completely wicked. Here's the Antichrist. And then at the end of verse 25 he says when they feel secure he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed but not by human power. So the Antichrist prevails in the world until When? until God comes but he explains everything but not a word about the mysterious 2300 days and the vindication of the sanctuary not a word verse 26 the vision of the evening and the mornings the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true but seal it up for the future seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future i daniel was exhausted and lay ill for several days then i got up and went about the king's business i was appalled by the vision it was beyond understanding and so the prophet understands a great deal about truth but he doesn't have an understanding about the 2300 days or the vision of the vindication of the sanctuary and in daniel 9 he prays for understanding and god sends down the mighty angel Gabriel, And he comes down to start to explain to him the vision. Look at Daniel 9, please. Turn to the text. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying. This is Daniel 9, confessing my sin. Verse 21, while I was in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision. That's the vision of the 2300 days. He said, when I'm praying for understanding, God sends down the great angel. Verse 23, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people. Now listen carefully. The vision of Daniel 8 that is not understood is the vision concerning time and the vision of the sanctuary. In Daniel 9, he's praying for the vindication of the sanctuary. And the first word, the first word of explanation is consider the vision 77s, 490 years, prophetic days. And the word decreed there is the Hebrew word kathak. And it means cut off or amputated. Amputated from the 2300 days or the 2300 years. So Daniel 9 is a start of the explanation. But my friend it is not the end. Notice Daniel 10 verse 12. Then he continued, do not be afraid Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind again, understanding. And to humble yourself before God. Your words were heard and I've come in response to them. And uh, verse 14. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Listen, you need to understand this. Daniel 9, he starts to explain it. Not enough, not enough. The 70 weeks are a part of the explanation. And then in Daniel 10, he says there's still more to come. Then when you come to Daniel 11 there's still more to come and Daniel 12 there's still more to come. Now notice please in Daniel 11 verse 31 his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. They will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And then verse 36, the king will do as he pleases, this is the Antichrist. But verse 45, he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. My friend, it's not very hard to understand. The explanation of Daniel 8 and the 2300 days climaxes in the destruction of the Antichrist and the setting up of the kingdom of God. The language is the same as you read in Daniel 8. It cannot be understood in the context of Antiochus Epiphanes. In Daniel chapter 12, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not has, not, has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Listen, my friend. In Daniel 8, the question is, how long? How long, Lord, until you do something about this? And the final answer is given over here where we're told that Michael is going to stand up and God's people are going to be delivered. Those whose names are found written in the book in the time of the judgment and so the 2300 days cannot be fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes one thing is certain Dale Ratzleff's attempts to confine Daniel eight fourteen to the times of Antiochus Epiphanes fail miserably and go against the context of scripture what is more commentator after commentator confess that the 2,300 days do not fit the time period of Antiochus Epiphanes. They've got to do all sorts of twistings and turning to get the 2,300 days to fit there. What is the cleansing, the vindication and the restoration of the sanctuary? Well it's marvelous and it's plain. Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 are parallel passages. Daniel 7 Babylon, Daniel 8, Babylon's gone. Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia. Greece, Greece. Rome, Antichrist, Antichrist. Then my friend in Daniel chapter 7 you should read it. Come to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one. So there is the Antichrist, you see that. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. My friend, after the Antichrist comes the great pre-advent judgment. And so you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Antichrist, judgment, which leads to the opening of the books and the setting up of the kingdom of God. Notice, read on, verse 21-22. As I watched, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Verse 25, he will speak against the Most High, that's the Antichrist. Verse 26, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Listen, my friend, listen, Dale. Listen Dale, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Antichrist, a judgment against the Antichrist but a judgment that involves the saints of God. It is a judgment that involves the saints of God because in that judgment the saints of God are vindicated and they possess the kingdom because the judgment... Opens the doors to the kingdom. Daniel 8. Babylon is gone. gone, But you have Medo-Persia. Greece. And then the Antichrist. And you have there the cleansing. Or the vindication. The cleansing. The vindication. The nitstak of the sanctuary. And then my friend. You have the coming of the kingdom of God. And if these Chapters are parallel, and every decent scholar says they are. Then, my friend, in distinct parallelism, you have here the judgment, and on this side, you have the cleansing, the vindication of the sanctuary. The vindication of the sanctuary points to the judgment of Almighty God that takes away power from the Antichrist, that vindicates the suffering saints and that brings in the eschatological kingdom. At the time of the end, at the end of the 2300 days, God will work to unmask the Antichrist, restore the true gospel, vindicate his slandered saints by the work of judgment and reestablish his kingdom, one great scholar wrote, "In the light of these reflections, it becomes apparent that the apocalyptic portrayal of Daniel 8:10 to14 symbolizes the great controversy between good and evil at its climax. The vindication of the sanctuary, which represents the divine kingdom, points not only to the vindication of the saints and the judgment, but also the vindication of God and his truth. It must include, therefore, a work on earth that cleanses the church, God's sanctuary on earth from the traditions of men and the shame of sin. The law, which is so often in Scripture called the truth, and which has been cast to the ground, must be uplifted. The true daily, the everlasting gospel of righteousness by faith, which has been taken away by all counterfeit religious systems, must be proclaimed again. That is why I am what I am. Why the movement of 1844? It was not a fraud, but a God-ordained movement to launch a great restoration message. Miller made many mistakes. But so did the apostles in their exegesis of Old Testament prophecies. In fact, the apostles, after Pentecost, believed in a shut-door theory, that the Gentiles were lost. That's why nobody went to the Gentiles. The apostles were prophets. They made mistakes. Their understanding of Bible prophecy was quite wrong. In spite of Miller's mistakes, God was in the 1844 movement because, you see, God doesn't believe in perfectionism. Alan White is accused of deception and being the originator of false prophecies and doctrines Dale Ratzlaff who was brought up probably to believe in inerrancy fails to understand the work of a prophet and the true nature of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament not infallible, not inerrant. He says he doesn't believe in perfectionism. He does when he judges Ellen White. He expects perfectionism. But she's not perfect. But none of the apostles were. Maybe he isn't. But let me tell you something. She faithfully pointed people to Jesus. Jesus and the Bible says not by perfect theology but he says by their fruits you will know them by their fruits her writings have been and continue to be misused and abused but when the true gift of prophecy is understood she stands the test she upholds Christ and the word that is the mark of a prophet Not perfection. Did she make mistakes? Yes, she said. She said, only God and heaven are infallible. Some of her followers today make claims for her that she never did. But if you understand the truth about a prophet, she stands the test. My friend Dale says there's a conflict between the pre Advent judgment and the gospel. There is for many. There's none for me. The judgment is not to tell God who's good and who's bad. I think He knows. The judgment is not, you see, to condemn, the judgment is to vindicate and deliver. That is the good news of the judgment. And the gospel tells me that in Christ, I have perfect peace and perfect assurance. I believe in the pre-advent judgment, and I believe in the everlasting gospel. When I was a boy at Avondale College, 16 or 17, down from the bush, but not down from the trees, I heard a man preach in the Avondale Chapel on the God-filled blank. Pastor Ron Vince, who was the Voice of Prophecy speaker, he said, in every person there's a blank. Only God can fill it. When he was preaching, I thought, he must know all about me because he's talking about me. That's good preaching. If you sit in church and you're convicted, It's because the Spirit of God. If you sit in church and you're never touched by the Spirit and never convicted of your sins, it's either because you've got a heart as hard as a rock or you're sleeping, or both. But when he preached, I said, that's me. And some nights later, Tom Ludowisi, now Dr. Tom Ludowisi, and my dear brother whom I love, led me out beneath the big oleander trees on the campus at Avondale College and taught me to say my first prayer. I said a silly little prayer just as well God is not a perfectionist, isn't it? With us. He's perfect, just as well he doesn't get down on us because of the dumb, stupid things we do. There was a big storm coming I said, Lord, if you love me, if you've heard my prayers, stop it raining. And we finished our prayer. I got up and walked to the men's dormitory. And As Tom and I walked through the door, the rain came down so heavy that it hit us on our backs as we came through the door. I said, God has heard my prayers. God has heard the prayers of a poor student. And for days after I walked around dazed and amazed and the sky was blue and the birds were singing such beautiful songs. Everybody seemed so nice and sweet. It was a new world and I had peace in my heart. And I've struggled ever since then, sometimes up and sometimes down, but always facing the new Jerusalem not afraid of the judgment because the judgment is not to condemn I have salvation now I don't have to wait until after the judgment to find out whether I'm saved Jesus did it on the cross and I'm saved by faith alone, not by faith and love and good works all those things, I'm saved by the blood alone And by grace alone and I have eternal life now and the judgment is for the purpose of vindicating the name of our God before the universe to 2300 evening mornings then shall the sanctuary which is a microcosm of the kingdom of God then the sanctuary and everything it stands for is going to be vindicated and the kingdom is going to be given to the saints of the Most High whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all peoples and nations shall serve him. Amen.